Good morning, church. My name is Ryan Hembury, and I'm one of the elders here at Mosaic Church. We'll be continuing through our series in the Psalms, and this morning we'll be in Psalm 62. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to flip there. Psalm 62 is a psalm about trusting God always. Theologian Athanasius said of this psalm, Against all attempts upon thy body, thy state, thy soul, thy frame, against temptations and tribulations, machinations and defamations, say this psalm. He viewed these verses as reminders to trust God amidst a wide variety of, tri- of trials. And before I go on, we're going to release the K through, what grade? Third. Third. K through three. Any K through three? Perfect. So as I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking through examples of trust. And ironically, one of the examples that came to mind was a parent teaching their son or their daughter to drive. And it's ironic because I haven't yet been on the passenger side of that relationship, stomping on an imaginary brake and giving the constant, maybe frantic driving tips. What I remember was being on the driver's side of that scenario, just brimming with confidence and thinking that I already knew everything there was to know about driving and that these lessons were really just a formality. What actually builds trust? What makes up its foundations? In order to trust someone, you must have confidence in both their character and in their abilities. Take the driving example. Before driving lessons begin, the student has very little ability to speak of. And for the teenagers, character is still forming and developing. So part of the reason this scenario is so stressful, part of the reason it's so fear-inducing is because two of the foundational pillars of trust are lacking. One more factor that I observed about trust is the level of the stakes matters. With driving, the stakes are high. The same driving lesson on a go-kart track just doesn't produce the same level of anxiety as, say, the North Central Expressway. So if trust is built based on abilities and character, and if the level of stakes matters, is God worthy of our trust? Will we trust him with our families, with our future, with our end? As we think about God's ability to build trust with us, where does he rank in the character category? As we'll see in Psalm 62, David spends time describing the unmatched character Of God. And what about the abilities of God? They are limitless. He is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. We are asked to trust Him in all things so the stakes could not be higher. In the garden, it wasn't enough for Adam and Eve to trust God or to rely on Him. They wanted to be like Him, so they chose to break trust by disobeying and sinning against God. And we have the same struggle today, don't we? It's incredibly difficult to trust in the Lord. And our lack of trust is often revealed by our predisposition toward fear and doubt. But God hasn't left us in silence. Let's read through the encouraging words penned by David in Psalm 62. 
And at the end of this reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you are invited to respond, thanks be to God. Because we are gathering together to proclaim truth and to praise the Lord for the gift of his holy word. Psalm 62 says this. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that, the power, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The heading over Psalm 62 reads, To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. We're not given a lot of background regarding who Jeduthun is, but even still, there are at least a couple of takeaways that we can have off the start. First, the author is presumably David, and this psalm was meant for the choir master, which might point to the text being used for a song for corporate worship. First Chronicles 16.42 says of Jeduthun that he had instruments for music and sacred song. Second, knowing the identity of the author and the audience helps us understand the purpose this psalm was written. So as we read through these words, we can imagine maybe a corporate worship gathering sitting under the teaching or singing of this song in order to learn more about God, to be encouraged, and also, as we'll see, to be warned. While these words were written thousands of years ago to a particular group of people, there is rich wisdom packed within these verses that we can apply and learn from in our own lives. As far as the structure of Psalm 62 goes, David starts off with a proclamation about God in verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4 are a lament or a complaint from the author. Verses 5 through 7 act as a refrain, kind of repetition of the first couple of verses in Psalm 62. And then the rest of the psalm, the remaining verses are part exhortation and part warning. The very crux of what David is trying to convey in this psalm is to trust God alone. I recognize this phrase can sound ambiguous. It's a phrase that you've probably heard so many times that it can begin to lose its meaning. Trust in God. What does that mean for you in your lives? What does that mean biblically? Like many things within our faith, there's not one right answer, which is frustrating, right? A lot of times we want the recipe so that we can just go do it. It could be like David says in verse 1, though, our soul waiting in silence for the Lord. 
Or maybe trusting in the Lord is more action-oriented, taking not only the narrow path, but the path that is unknown or intimidating. Trusting in God can take on various forms. One unifying attribute about trusting in the Lord, though, is that we frequently forget and we drift from trusting in God alone. We have to be reminded that he is good and worthy of our trust. The church is encouraged to gather and to worship God, to proclaim his goodness and to remind each other of his mighty acts. And not only his mighty acts throughout history, but his acts in our lives. We will camp out this morning on the concept of trusting in God, but I also want you to notice another theme that we see throughout the broader book of Psalms. How David and the other authors speak to God. We see such a wide variety of emotions in the book of Psalms, ranging from sadness to joy, from frustration to reverent worship. And I know in my own life, and I know from talking with many of you, that there are times where we can be unsure of how to approach God in prayer. We can be uncertain. Are we allowed to ask for that house offer to be accepted? Are we playing with fire to question God? Is it selfish to ask for that raise or promotion? Are we allowed to be frustrated with him? A look at the Psalms shows us that the author pours out their hearts to God. We see a model for prayer showing us that we can approach God with our praise and our pain, with our joy and our suffering. Let's look more closely at verse 1. For God alone My soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. David starts off this psalm with a proclamation about his faith in the Lord, that his soul waits in silence for God alone. What does that mean? If we look at the next line, it gives us insight into how the Bible defines trusting in the Lord. David's soul is able to wait in silence because he knows God is going to save him and to protect him from his troubles. Compare that to the the parent teaching their child to drive. Again, I haven't been there, but I can imagine literally holding on for dear life. And even if, and this is a big if, even if I were able to outwardly appear calm, I highly doubt that my soul would be silent. David, though, has a soul that inwardly matches his outward posture, trusting in God and waiting in silence for him. That is what God wants. Not for us to put on or feign an outer veil of calmness while our hearts are full of fear, but instead for our waiting on the Lord to penetrate down into our very souls. It is because of God's great character and his abilities that even when the stakes are at their highest, our soul can rest because he is trustworthy. David highlights God's character as he begins to weave his story or song, describing God as being constant like a rock, solid, a stronghold, and a mighty fortress. And David goes on to proclaim that salvation comes only from the Lord. But he also says this in verse 2, that God alone is salvation. David not only seeks protection from the Lord, he seeks the Lord. When we think about salvation, often we think about deliverance from punishment. But David is right to point out that salvation is also God himself. If we strictly consider salvation to be this heavenly reward given only when we leave this world, we overlook the current gift of union with Christ. 
The believer in Jesus Christ is indwelled with the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, which is a gift available today. David has built this strong foundation of knowing the truth of God, which would serve him as a deep well to draw from in the numerous trials he would face throughout his life. David saying he will not be greatly shaken is in a way reminiscent of what Paul says in Romans 8. If God is on our side, who can be against us? Were David and Paul saying that nothing would ever negatively affect them in their lives or for us in our lives? No. Difficult things happened in both David and Paul's lives. Instead, what we know is that if God is on our side, he is in the details of what we're going through. He's not surprised what we're going through. We need to have eternal perspective, even though we don't have eternal vision. Trusting in God is not a means to an end. It's not an action that we perform in hopes to get an answer to our prayers. Trusting in God gives us the real reward, which is more of him. Verse 3, how long will you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. Selah, this is a word that, um, that, that they're not actually sure exactly what it means. It could be something uh, in regards to a psalm from a music standpoint, um, but a lot of people think it means to pause and reflect. David is kind of walking through the trouble that he is in, and then he is saying to pause and to reflect. In verse 3, we see the state that David was in. He feels battered to the point where he is weakened and vulnerable, like a wall about to fall over with just one more nudge, and yet he sees no end to the oncoming attacks. His enemies want to oust him from his high position, and specifically, this enemy was not transparent in their attack. They were hypocrites and liars, blessing with their mouths, but inwardly cursing. And it was in this state amidst his enemies and feeling at the end of his rope, that David said this in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. This was a faithful man, a faith-filled man. We see the trouble that he was in, and yet he continued to repeat many of those proclamations. Notice in verse 5 how similar, though not exact, his words were to the start of the psalm. Remember, verse 1 said this, For God alone my soul waits in silence. And then the verse 5, he switches that order a bit and says this, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He proclaims again that his hope or salvation comes from God alone. But in verse 5, David is seemingly urging his soul to wait in silence. David appears to be reminding himself of truth in a time where his belief could feel unsteady. Are you seeing this unfold? Because what we, what we know about David and his life is that he had every reason in the world to trust God. The things that God did in his life were miraculous. They were faithful and they were constant. So take heart. Even with someone that had such a rich history with the Lord like David needed to remind himself to trust in God alone. We shouldn't feel like failures when we forget to trust in the Lord. And we've had opportunities recently, right, to trust in God with a contentious election, with a global pandemic. 
It was, it was tough on our family. My wife and I had difficult conversations on how to navigate. We didn't always land on the same page. We prayed to God. We asked for wise counsel. It was a difficult season for us in our marriage. We shouldn't feel like failures when we forget to trust in the Lord. One of the very functions of the church is to remind and to encourage each other. We gather on Sundays to proclaim and praise God. We have classes, we have, like, we have passage, we have spring and fall Bible studies, both to learn and to remind each other of God's truth. From here, David seems to build in confidence. In verse 2, he had said he will not be greatly shaken. And in verse 6, he more boldly asserts that he will not at all be shaken. And then he makes an addition to his refrain, saying in verse 7, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Verse 8, I think, can be viewed as a summary for the whole chapter. So if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. David again calls to pause and to reflect. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. David reiterates the singular source of his salvation and safety. And then he shifts to an exhortation more broadly to those gathered. Trust in him at all times, O people. David urges the listeners in the same way he urged his own soul. Trust in him alone, always. This next line, to me, was very helpful and instructive. Pour out your heart before him. It doesn't say spread out your request before God so that we don't overwhelm him. David doesn't advise measuring out appropriate amounts of your heart. The text says to pour out your heart before him. Empty your heart unto the Lord. This is a model for how we can approach the Lord and to speak to him. For he is a loving father who both desires to hear from us and to help us. To wrap up this psalm, David finishes with a mixture of warnings and encouragement. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. As I said up front, David's core message is to trust in God alone. Often we are quick to trust in ourselves or those we believe can help us. And that's not all bad. God has gifted us with abilities that we can use in a variety of ways to solve problems. He has graciously crafted the church to have a diverse set of abilities so that we can work together to accomplish something that none of us could individually. Having a level of confidence in ourselves or trust in our neighbors isn't a bad thing. It's when we take a good thing and try to make it ultimate is when we drift into sin. When we try to take a good thing and make it ultimate is when we drift into sin. David says that whether you are poor or rich, whether you are powerful or weak, as humans on either side, we are weighed, we are weighed on the scales of judgment and we are found wanting. Neither position is weighty. They both go up. David points out where our trust should be placed. And then he goes on to solidify his point by clarifying where we should avoid placing our trust. Not in money, or power. We are not to fret if we feel on the wrong side of money and power. And we are not to feel security if we have some of either. 
You see, we can begin to covet what we don't have to the point where we lose our contentment. Extortion and robbery seem like sins that we're far from in our own temptations. They almost feel out of place in this psalm. But when we lose contentment and begin to idolize a desire, we can be tempted towards sins we never would have otherwise considered. When we lose contentment and begin to idolize a desire, we can be tempted towards sins we never would have otherwise considered. On the flip side, when we have more than we need, more than our daily bread, we can begin to look to ourselves to find rest and not to the Lord. David warns that as riches increase, it can be even more of a temptation to trust riches over God. But hear this. One of the very best things we can gain from God giving us money or power is to receive it and then to begin to grasp that it doesn't solve our problems. What is better than either learning to be content in our lowest state or even being generous in our highest state? Receiving more of the Lord. We must lift our eyes up with eternal perspective to understand that He is the reward. And then the last couple of verses, verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. There's not a consensus view of why David chose to phrase verse 11 in this manner. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. It could be poetic language like we see throughout the book of Psalms. Or one commentator wrote that God must only speak once for his word to come into existence. As humans, however, we have to hear things initially, but in our weakness, we are prone to forget. And we have to hear them a second time as we continually remind ourselves of God's truth. But either way, what is clear from verses 11 and 12 is that power and steadfast love belong to God. How great that our God is both powerful and steadfast in his love. What if he were powerful but not loving? He would be a tyrant. He would be mighty but malevolent, like a dictator without a moral compass. How dangerous. And what if he were loving but not powerful? He would be impotent, with a strong desire to help but only a childlike ability to do so. That would be disappointing. No, our God is both powerful and steadfast in his love, which has the implication in that whatever way he desires to display his love toward us, he also has the power to make it happen. Amidst the encouragement and warnings of verses 9 through 12, David concludes with this, for you will render to a man according to his work. For whatever reason, that phrase reminds me of another phrase, I hope you get everything you deserve. And on the surface, that can sound kind. If somebody said that to me, I might walk away thinking, that was, that was a kind thing for them to say. And then I might start thinking, what did they mean by that? What is it that I deserve? Because I think we know that even on our best days, we know we fall short. And so the words, you will render to a man according to his work, can on the flip side sound terrifying. This is the foundation where David has built in his mind regarding the character of God, is so important. God is just. He will both reward and punish. He will serve as a just and a righteous God. But he is also gracious. 
We do indeed fall short of the glory of God, and the punishment for sin is death. But God, in His great mercy, made a plan that solves for how that solves the mystery for how He can be both just and merciful. Our sin requires atonement. Our sin must be paid for, for that is justice. So God sent His Son Jesus Christ to pay our designated death penalty, but He did not stay dead, did He, Church? No. You can answer back. You know the answer. On the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And that is the gospel truth. Is God worthy of your trust? Yes. God rewards faithfulness, not only with answers or solution, not always with answers and solutions, but instead with more of himself at all times, in all ways. In this past difficult season, for my wife and I, we prayed a lot. We wanted to know what the right path was, what the right answers were. And sometimes we weren't on the same page, and that was difficult. Again, we prayed. We sought wise counsel. We had brothers and sisters pray for us and remind us of truth. God rewards faithfulness, not always with answers or solutions, but instead with more of himself at all times, in all ways. Many of you have placed your trust in God. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to persevere in your faithfulness, to remember how futile it is to trust in the things of this world, yet how secure it is to trust in God. For others of you, you might have questions or doubts or previous hurts that make it difficult for you to place your trust in God. If that is you, we invite your questions. We would love to talk with you and to pray with you. There are welcome cards at the front. If you see somebody with a name tag on staff or a deacon or an elder, we would love to talk with you and to pray with you. We would love nothing more. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for a time every week to gather together and to pray and to sing and to fellowship and to learn from your word. God, we pray that we would trust you alone always. We pray that we would trust you with our body and our soul, with our talents and our character, with our success, with our families, with our friends, with our work. God, we pray that we would trust you with our future and with our very end. And God, we pray all these things in your name, knowing that you have the power to answer these prayers. We pray them in your name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.